Welcome, you happy warrior. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Appen Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And uh, I, I welcome you in the singular because I really do think of, of you and you and you, uh, each separate person listening from, gosh, this last week I've heard from people in Uganda, people in China, uh, people throughout Canada, people in about 17 different states of the United States. And uh, each one is somebody that I, I cherish and appreciate each and every one of you. So thank you for listening, and I, I haven't thanked you for a while, uh, but so many of you are helping to promote the show and tell other people about it, and that increases the community, and to be honest, it makes the world less of a lonely place. You know, when when you know that there are people that you are connected with through the show, that's terrific. And as those numbers, you know, start climbing above the tens of thousands of listeners, um, it not only gratifies me, but it also makes me feel less alone. I'm part of a community and it should do the same for you as well. So I thank you very much indeed. And that's why I welcomed you as a singular. I said, welcome, oh, happy warrior. Uh, but obviously, I'm speaking now, and I know that uh, many, many, many tens of thousands of listeners are listening, and uh, and so uh, it really is happy warriors, of course, but I wanted you to know that I am thinking very consciously of each and every one of you as an individual happy warrior, somebody who joyfully embraces the challenges of life with a smile on your face and a jaunty step in your stride. Yeah, that's it. And I'll tell you something else, and that is that when I speak about politics, and from time to time, you know, I, I do speak about political issues that crop up, um, at the same time, I want you to know that it's not a show about politics at all. No, it's a show in which my function is improving your life through by providing data and information through the lens of ancient Jewish wisdom. If this show is not improving your five Fs, if this show is not playing a role in helping you be more effective in your relationships with your finances, with your friendships, yes, with your family, even your physical fitness and your faith, then I am failing in my job. And so when I speak about uh, political issues, and yes, I am going to mention a couple of things, um, it's not to poke fun at the President of the United States, although he is a worthy candidate for such activity. Uh, it, is, it is not in any way to gloat over the misfortunes of the United States. Look, um, I, I love this country. I really do. And uh, I, I, I get a lump in my throat when I hear the Star Spangled Banner being played and sung at, at some public event. Uh, I get a lump in my throat when I find myself speaking at a church or 
at a corporate event. You know, I, I told you I spoke at a corporate event in uh, Kansas City recently where I was speaking to, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 men who were all hardworking, successful, accomplished Christian business professionals. Actually, there was one Jewish business professional there all the way from San Diego. He came in to hear me, and uh, it was great meeting him. Eric, hi. I hope you're listening, and uh, I appreciate you coming. And uh, and look, I went away feeling really optimistic. I was, gosh, you know what? If in the middle of this great country there are still a lot of people like that, and um, and there are more people like that than are who live in New York or in Los Angeles. Um, that's certainly got to be a sign of hope. But the reason I talk about this stuff is because I want you to be able to make the right decisions for your life. And it does not matter where you are living, China, Uganda, to think of people I've heard from. I'll read you a letter from somebody in China, which is absolutely astounding to me. But the reason I'm telling you all this is because large parts of your world have been shaped by American dominance since World War II. And although America will still remain a very blessed place to live for for most people, uh, it'll still remain a magnet for people who wish to immigrate here legally or illegally. And uh, that will certainly continue. It won't be anything like it used to be in 1950 or 1960, but um, it's still okay. But wherever you are, the fact that America is going to be and is experiencing hyperinflation, really significant inflation, that is important for you to know about wherever you live. Because in some way or another at the moment, uh, either directly or in many cases indirectly, your assets are dollar denominated in one way or another. And so uh, for you to know that inflation is actually already in the double digits, even though that's not yet being conceded by the Treasury or by the administration, um, but this is the reality. And so the the 5.8% that is being uh, touted as the official um, inflation rate is flagrantly wrong. It is a media lie attempting to protect Joe Biden and his administration. But uh, when you actually look not at the arbitrary numbers that are cited by the administration, but you but if you switch those arbitrary numbers for real numbers uh, for for rent and food and energy, um, then you will know you will see that the inflation is well up in double digits, and uh, we really do have a very serious problem. So what is going to happen you know, as our inflation rate begins to resemble what we saw in 77, 78, 79, 80? Um, you know, yeah, look, so you need to know that uh, tight money and increased interest rates are what they usually use to try and get inflation under control. Uh, this is what um, Volcker, you may remember the Treasury guy Volcker, did back in the 1970s. 
and uh, and right now the majority of Federal Reserve officials are saying privately this is going to be necessary to get the current inflation we're experiencing under control. Really, really important. Um, I've got uh, some dear friends who run a company called Life Benefits, and um, they have very wisely been advising their clients, and um, and this uh, this 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 approach to inflation that I'm discussing is one that they uh, very much advocate and uh, and encourage their people to know. So you know you are not my clients, but you are part of of my. Well, think of it as a virtual congregation in a sense. We are a community. And uh, in, in the same way that my friends at Life Benefits want their clients to understand what's happening with inflation, uh, so it is that I want you to be well-equipped as well for that. Now, there's another aspect of being a happy warrior, and I want you to really get this clear. Let me tell you what it is in a nutshell. Happy warriors are people who bond with others by belief not by skin color, not by gender, not by financial status. And so we could not be more diametrically opposed to the Marxist view of reality, which is that people are grouped into groups by their skin color, by whether they're male or female, or by their whether they're rich or poor. Uh, these are ways of thinking of people that would only make sense if we had no spiritual dimension at all. If we were nothing but biology, biological constructs, and we are nothing more than about nine and a half dollars worth of common chemicals arranged cunningly, uh, then yes, in the same way that we classify dogs according to their breeds and cows according to their breeds, and uh, and you know we we classify uh, animals again you know by gender. If you want to buy uh, a a breeding bull, then you wouldn't be very happy if you got sold a cow. Um, and financial status, yeah, right. That's not all there is to us. And so we happy warriors connect with one another by our belief systems, not by skin color, not by gender, not by financial status. And belief system doesn't mean we all have to be of the same faith or the same religion. No. Uh, what it means is that the there really are two ways of understanding reality. One is a God-centric way, and the other is a secular way. And um, obviously, there are large numbers of people who adhere to both visions of reality. And your task as a happy warrior is to try and explore independently and to arrive at a persuasive conclusion in your own heart as to which view does a better job of providing you with a roadmap to how the world really works. Uh, in, in my heart and in my mind, I do not think a secular worldview explains reality at all. I think that there are well-intentioned attempts 
by the worlds of psychiatry and psychology to try and come up with secular ways to interpret the vagaries of the human soul. And uh, it translates into whether somebody needs therapy or somebody needs pharmacological or psychotropic drug treatment. Um, These things are nothing other than attempts to try and resolve the hunger of the soul by means of chemical or chemicals or by means of uh, a post-Freudian academic reality. This is what we experience. And so what I talk about um, on this show is essentially a, a God-centric view of reality. And not surprisingly, it has impacts on politics, on entertainment, on uh, science, on public health, and many, many other areas. Uh, the extent to which the reach of your decision is almost limitless. In other words, how you decide you are going to live your life. Am I going to live my life as if this is a godless materialistic world of biological determinism or whether this is a God-centric world, the implications are huge. They're huge for your family. They're huge for your finances. They're huge for, they're huge for your physical health. And uh, they're huge for your relationships of almost every kind. And I think we uh, have in the past done a lot of that, and we're going to do a whole lot more, obviously. Now, when you have dealings with politicians, which obviously you have to do all the time in, in almost any place you live, in almost any lifestyle you enjoy, in almost any occupation by means of which you serve God's other children, you see right there is the difference, right? In a secular worldview, you work in order to make money. That's all there is to it. When you get right down to it, at the end of the day, that is um, a rather unsatisfying way to spend, you know, between 40 and 100 hours of your week, depending on, on how you work and what you do. But if that's all you're doing, well, then it wouldn't be at all surprising if you live your professional life with a desperate yearning for the end in sight. Oh, and only I'll be able to retire and stop all this working when I'll have enough money so I don't have to work anymore. And then you retire and you discover that, well, life without work's not all it's cracked up to be, which is weird because if we're materialistic and purely physical, then we're just like any other animal. And wouldn't it be nice for a, a baboon uh, to be able to stop foraging for food? Uh, wouldn't it be nice for a bear to no longer have to hibernate for half the year in order to survive? And wouldn't it be nice for you to be able to quit work? And then you discover that there is a spiritual need. Well, you don't do it because you're of a secular persuasion. And so you tell your therapist or you tell your psychologist, I'm feeling empty in retirement. Well, of course you are, 
because up till now it was selfish and meaningless. Your entire professional life was venal. You were literally behaving like a baboon. You were working so you can keep eating. That's all. But then there's the God-centric way, which says, no, I am working in order to connect with and serve God's other children. And so no matter what I do, nothing I do in serving you is ever menial because it's a privilege to serve a child of God, another human being. But uh, if I work in a secular, godless world, well, then I resent each and every other human being. And uh, I, I see somebody coming into the store, the office, and I'm behind the counter, and I shoot daggers of resentment towards that person or that potential customer because I have to stop doing what I was doing, which was daydreaming. And now I have to trivialize myself and I have to engage in a menial, self-lowering activity of serving that person. And that destroys an economy. It's no surprise that the world has yet to see a secular, socialistic tyranny operating an effective uh, in, uh, um, economy. It just doesn't happen. It can't happen. It's no surprise that no capital market has ever arisen indigenously in a non-Christian country because it is precisely having a God-centric worldview that allows people to serve one another joyfully. And what produces money is serving other human beings. That's exactly what it is. So we're not materialistic, on this show at least, and therefore when we connect with other people, it's not because women of the world unite and we're all women or we're all men and we have to fight the uh, toxic masculinity label, men should unite, uh, or you know we're not uh, all going to connect because we're white or other people are black and we'll connect because we're black because only black lives matter. No, not at all. It is that we share beliefs not necessarily particular faith, but we share the belief overall of a God-centric reality. Now, again, this, this doesn't mean that you have to agree with every aspect of it, but it just means that you are, you know, you're on a cruise liner where there are two sittings for dinner. There's the 7 p.m. sitting for dinner and there's the 9 p.m. sitting for dinner. The dining room is not big enough for everybody. And so you've got to decide. And the truth is you like eating dinner at 8. But that's not an option. You've got to choose to eat at 7 p.m. Or you've got to choose to eat at 9 p.m. And so what you might do is take a look and see which people go to the 7 o'clock one, which one go to the 9 o'clock one. And you're going to say, you know, we, uh, we seem to be more comfortable overall with the nine o'clock crowd. Um, it's, uh, it's more adult. There are fewer kids. It's less noisy. And we're, we're just more comfortable. That doesn't mean we agree with everybody at the adjoining tables. Of course not. But we have to choose. And my dear friends, that is the choice before us all. This was not true. 
20 years ago. It may not even have been true 10 years ago. I'd have to think about that. But it's certainly true now in the year of my recording this show, 2021. And that is that uh, you, you have to decide, are you going to live your life as if it is a God-centric world, a world where there is a spiritual reality and where a whole lot of human behavior makes sense? It's not arbitrary and, uh, and strange. No, it makes sense through the lens of a spiritual reality. Or are you going to say, you know what, I can't live with that. I had such a bad experience when I first went to church or when I went to synagogue originally. You know, I'm never going back into that world. I can't handle it. And you decide no. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you uh, cut off your nose to spite your face, as it were, because uh, you sometimes find that the experience in a secular environment is even worse than whatever you experienced, unfortunately, back when you were 12 years old or whenever it was that you were traumatized by a bad encounter in church or synagogue. And uh, and the truth is, you know, uh, get over it, right? I mean, it, it's not that I'm without sympathy. You know, we've all, we've all had our experiences with unpleasant people, and sometimes they are religious people as well. It happens, right? but get over it there's still a lot of life ahead live it and you can't really do it if you are continually allowing yourself to be traumatized by everything or anything that happened in the past you got to move ahead so if you think race is the most important thing in the world and that the uh, the the critical aspect of United States history or anything else going on in the world today, well, it's race, it's skin color, that's what it's all about. So congratulations, you're a very good little Marxist and uh, Karl Marx would be very, very proud of you as would his uh, neophytes and, uh, and descendants in the present time. So, um, you know, fine, then I, I get it, that's what you've decided. Um, alternatively, you might agree with me that a happy warrior is somebody who bonds with other people by basic beliefs, not by skin color, not by whether you're male or female, and not by whether you are rich or poor, in spite of the fact that those terminologies make absolutely no sense for spiritual creatures like human beings. There is no such thing as rich or poor, because those terms are entirely relational. They're entirely relative. There isn't such a thing as a rich person. And when you hear politicians saying, the rich must pay their fair share, clutch your wallet and run for your life. Because if you're not designated rich today, you will be designated rich tomorrow, for sure. So uh, do not cheer when you hear people saying, oh, the rich must pay their fair share, because they're looking right at you. Now, in an attempt to be helpful, uh, making sure that I can enhance your life and make sure that your investment of time, and after all, that is the most precious commodity there is, your investment of time listening to my talking here and being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show and being a part of our little community. Well, it's not that little anymore, I've got to tell you. And um, 
Uh, I've got to make it worth your while. So you know how sometimes you feel a little down, um, you you feel um, as if somehow, you know, you, you, you hear so much about depression, 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 you start thinking, I wonder if I'm depressed right now. And you're just feeling that you're not making progress. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, um, it's Friday, I've gone through the whole week, and if I look back to my to-do list from Sunday, uh, everything I should have been able to do in the last five or six days, I haven't done it all yet. And you're starting to feel miserable. Um, here is something that has to cheer you up. You've got to think that there is no reason for you to despair because the United States has just spent 20 years, 20 years, during the uh, the terms of not one, not two, but four presidents. And with the spending of two trillion dollars, actually two and a quarter trillion dollars to be precise, which, as I pointed out recently, is an expenditure rate on average of more than $300 million every single day. And... Um, and what has been done over 20 years and four presidents and two and a quarter trillion dollars? Well, we've replaced the Taliban with, that's right, the Taliban. And so, by comparison, you without question have achieved far more in the last week than the United States of America achieved in the last 20 years spending two and a quarter trillion dollars in Afghanistan. That's got to make you feel a little bit better, right? You know, unless, unless you're an American taxpayer, in which case I'm afraid it's going to make you feel, well, a whole lot worse, I guess. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to, to make anybody feel worse. I want everyone to feel upbeat and optimistic because being optimistic is a huge benefit. It not only makes you more effective, it makes you nicer to be around both socially and business-wise, and it makes you dive into work with a great deal more enthusiasm and with a great deal more confidence. So optimism build up your optimism. How do you build your optimism? Well, you know already. You've been listening to the show long enough. The biggest and most effective secret technique for building optimism is to say thank you to a good few people regularly. I recommend between three and five people a day you should be able to thank. And if indeed uh, you have decided to structure your life in a God-centric way, and that doesn't mean you necessarily go to church or synagogue every day or every week or every month, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you read the Bible every week, although it's not a bad idea, uh, but it means that you've decided that in a world where it is now today a binary choice, you are one way or the other, you are either taking a progressive, secular, socialistic worldview, or you're going to take what is essentially a God-centric worldview. Uh, in, in such a binary world, um, you, you make up your mind, you make up your decision, and in that situation, you are lucky because in the need to thank three, four, five people a day, three or five entities a day, in order to express gratitude because that generates your own optimism dramatically, 
uh, one of those entities is God. So right there off the bat, being able to start your day thanking God, uh, which is, uh, by the way, one of the most beautiful uh, Hebrew prayers. We actually start our day every day where we say we give thanks to you, O Lord. We do for restoring our souls and letting us open our eyes and allowing us to embark on a fresh new day with fresh new beginnings and fresh new potential. You know, what a gift it is to wake up in the morning, particularly after a restful night's sleep. How beautiful is that? And uh, don't take it for granted, for heaven's sake. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, just you know, say to yourself, thank you, God, this is an incredible gift. Now, for many people, that's really difficult to do. You feel self-conscious. So, um, you know, start off thinking, <laughs> start off thinking it rather than saying it. That might be a little easier, I guess. Now, I said earlier that, uh, you know, everybody has to deal with politicians, either on a federal level or a state level or a county level or a city level. Uh, sometimes it's uh, the politician who's running your local school district. Uh, who knows? But whatever it is, you need to know the general rule with uh, politicians in general. And this in no way uh, eliminates the reality that there are very good people in politics. Not many, but there are. But whoever it is, here's the general rule with politics. And uh, please remember this because it'll stand you in very good stead. Please remember, pay attention only to what they have done, not to the things they say. It's really important. Get used to tracking the history of a politician. The things they have done, that's what matters. The track record above all. They might say the most appealing ideas. They might express the most uh, desirable sentiments. But please, please, for your own good, get used to paying attention to what they have done. And so uh, I'll talk about the American president, Joe Biden, for just a moment, um, because um, there is much having to do with the spending of this bonanza of trillions of dollars of federal money that are, I mean, you know, two and a quarter trillion being uh, being wasted in Afghanistan, but about three trillion is going to be um, spent, a great deal of which will be wasted. You need to get an idea of what's going on. And to do that, you need to get an idea of the character of the chief executive. And by the way, this is true. If uh, if you are applying for a job or if you're in a job or if you're in a business, you kind of need to get a sense of the character of the people you're associated with. And again, it's not a case of what they say. It is a case of what they do. And you have to be aware of this for yourself as well. We all have to realize that we are being judged and judged legitimately, not by the things we say, but the things we do and the things we have done. It's like really important. And so um, apropos of what uh, Joe Biden is doing on the international front, um, without question strengthening China, uh, blowing opportunities to connect with Russia and uh, 
inflating the United States dollar dangerously to the point where I do believe we're going to see the end of the dollar as the international currency, reserve currency. All of this, you, you've got to get an idea. So um, most recently, I mean, I, there's so much of this stuff to pick on that I'm, I'm not even going to spend a lot of time on it. But I just want you to understand that uh, things that are happening are happening because of the character of the chief executive of the United States of America. And due to the Constitution of the United States, uh, the president has a great deal of power. Not for nothing do they call him the most powerful man in the world, although I don't think that is true any longer. But uh, especially when he is being allied with by all the media, and being allied with by large parts of Congress, um, then you need to know what sort of guy you're dealing with. So uh, just one little thing that I happen to be aware of, and that is that, uh, what's it now, uh, three years ago, in October 2018, um, a guy with a gun walked into the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and um, he opened fire murdered 11 people, right? A, a terrible, terrible thing. Um, Biden, the President Biden, the President of the United States of America, uh, claims that uh, he visited the synagogue. And recently, I'm going to say uh, it was probably either the last few days of August 2021 or the first few days of September 2021, President Biden spoke at an event with Jewish leaders, and he told these Jewish leaders that he spent time at the synagogue after this attack in October 2018. And, um, well, <laughs> uh, it's extraordinary, right? Because, again, unfortunately, a majority of self-identified American Jews are secular fundamentalists. They have made the secular choice. Yes, I know it's strange to hear that Jews, the descendants of the people who stood at the foot of Mount Sinai, um, 3,300 years ago. Yeah, it is strange, but um, that is a reality. And of course, the Jewish leaders on this call, all, yeah, 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 they lapped up, yeah, yeah, give us more, give us more. But uh, here's the interesting thing, and that is that the New York Post was smart enough to actually delve into it because they know that Joe Biden has a history of lying. And, uh, and they checked up with the synagogue, and sure enough, officials at the Tree of Life Synagogue in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, assured the New York Post that President Biden has never paid a visit. He wasn't president then, right? It's not that it's just as president. As a man, Joe Biden has never been at the Tree of Life. But that's what he told a group of Jewish leaders. And so uh, uh, in the three years since the shooting in October 2018, Joe Biden has never been a visitor at the synagogue. Never happened. Um Donald Trump visited the synagogue. Uh, a person who was Treasury Secretary at the, at the time, Steve Mnuchin, he visited the synagogue. Uh, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf, a Democrat, he visited the synagogue. Uh, Biden has a history of giving false accounts 
on non-stop you might remember on the campaign trail uh, back in 2019 he said he traveled to afghanistan to award a medal to a war hero every detail of his story was false totally made up out of whole cloth it's it's shocking uh, the Washington Post, by the way, which is no uh, conservative paper, actually identified all the errors and untruths in Biden's speech. Uh, Biden has repeatedly told a story about his interactions with an Amtrak railway conductor while he was vice president. But the story isn't true. What's more, it couldn't have been true because the conductor to whom Biden alluded had retired from Amtrak and died a year before Biden claimed the story occurred. It's, um, it's just a different way of doing things. Uh, President Biden uh, got into severe trouble as a law student for plagiarism, stealing somebody else's work. And finally, in the worst of all possible sins, I think, uh, President Biden had a physical relationship with a married woman. Yeah, that's right. How do I know this? Well, I don't know it, obviously. I can only quote Bill Stevenson, who was Jill Biden's first husband. And Bill Stevenson, who is not a conservative, I mean, he, uh, he, he supports the Democratic Party, but um, he has stated unequivocally that he was cuckolded by Joe Biden. That's right. He was still married to Jill uh, when she and Joe embarked on an affair and that resulted in him and Jill getting divorced. And then Jill married Joe Biden. This was somewhere around about 1975. But um, and so why do I believe the ex-husband of the first lady well, because, number one, it's never fun to admit that you were cuckolded. That's a, a kind of depressing thing, It's right? It shouldn't happen to any man. It's a horrible thing. So I don't think he'd say it and make it up unless he really didn't like Joe Biden. But that's not the case. He wishes him well. He, uh, he wishes his former wife well. But he feels this is part of his story that uh, he needs to tell because it accounts for why his marriage ended. And he says, look, I'm happily married now. I'm okay. Uh, my, my wife I'm married to is the best thing that ever happened to me. But the fact remains that any man who sleeps with your wife is your enemy. I mean, there's no way you feel good about that. And so everything that uh, Bill Stevenson has said about the situation and the way in which he said it uh, does sound very persuasive to me that, in fact, that is exactly what happened. You've got to have a really despicable character to sleep with another man's wife. It's like really, really bad. Uh, you're a lowlife. And that's the reality. So why, why is all of this important? Well, because we have to assume that the president's connections with China, uh, the way that his son's paintings, and I've put quotes around the word paintings, are being bought by wealthy Chinese interests, one has to assume that a person of low character doesn't have the interests of the United States at heart. People of low character have their own interests at heart primarily. Now, for most of us, 
it's really hard to accept the idea that there are people who will look you in the face, look into your eyes, and lie, just completely lie in their own interests, mislead you, and uh, even harm you by providing you with false information. And um, it's just difficult. So how do you tell when somebody's lying? And I think this may be interesting, regardless, again, uh, wherever you are probably or possibly you may well be somebody who has not yet decided whether you are going to throw your lot in with uh, those who see the world in a God-centric way, or whether you're going to ally yourself with those who see us living in a materialistic and a completely secular environment. And the trouble is that the time when one can avoid making such a decision is running out. Sooner or later, it becomes necessary to make up your mind where you fit in, on which side, which of the sittings are you joining, the 7 p.m. or the 9 p.m. And if you are a single individual, then you can postpone the decision for longer. If you're married, then uh, the pressure is on you because it has to do with the vitality and the integrity of your marriage. That you are both on the same page on this fundamental of all decisions. And if you are actually the parent of children as well, well, then you have very little time at all. And something that we've discussed in the past is that by making a decision, by cutting off options, you actually strengthen yourself. You actually make yourself more capable of achievement and you are propelled forward with far more drive. And you'll remember the example I usually give is firing a, uh, a round in the open air just by hitting the back of the round, hitting the percussion cap with a nail, uh, or alternatively, firing off that round with a hammer of a revolver or of a pistol or of a rifle and now by confining all the rapidly expanding gases that come from the gunpowder burning by confining that all and allowing only one avenue for their escape uh, the bullet is hurtled down the barrel and will escape from the mouth of the barrel depending on the length of the barrel and the kind of round you know, anything approaching the speed of sound to, to well over the speed of sound. And all of that is only because of the confining. And something like that is going on here as well, where if you confine yourself, in other words, um, you, you, you terminate the period of options. Well, I haven't yet decided, you know, and there is something very comforting about, oh, I can still make that decision down the road. You punt it, you kick the can down the road, and you postpone the decision-making. Uh, the trouble is that by so doing, you're also depriving yourself of the huge propulsive result of making a decision that does confine you and does force you down a certain avenue. And so, uh, uh, it's it's probably advisable. It's certainly worth your while thinking about it, that if you haven't yet made that decision, either way, go ahead and make it because it opens up new possibilities and it's certainly 
um, gives you fuel that drives you forward in in an exciting way that you don't anticipate. So um, how do you know when somebody's lying to you? Uh, it's very difficult, but there is a, a lesson from ancient Jewish wisdom that comes from the book of Judges, chapter 16. It's the story of Samson. And um, again, regardless of how you decide whether the Bible is significant and an important influence in the history of the world, and yes, there's a reason why one of the greatest painters of all time, the great Rembrandt, the Dutch painter, there is a reason why he painted Bible scene after Bible scene after Bible scene. Um, one of his most magnificent paintings is the, the painting of Abraham sending away Hagar um, with her son Ishmael and banishing her from the house in accordance with uh, Sarah's wishes. I was just looking at uh, reproductions of this painting again this last week. That's why it's in my mind. I'm so struck by it. And uh, and you can see Sarah's face in the window as she watches her husband driving away her nemesis. And there's even a picture. You even see uh, Isaac, you know, 10 years younger, a young child at the doorway peering out at his half-brother being driven away. Uh, but again, you know, in, in 2021, very few artists are painting Bible scenes because most people in the arts and entertainment have made their decision that they live in a secular world, uh, a godless world of biological determinism and materialistic evolution. That's the decision they've made. But um, it wasn't like that. The the elites, the people who, who really did uh, shape the world in which we live, and Rembrandt was certainly such a person, uh, for him, the Bible was very alive and very, very real. So at any rate, um, if you uh, are interested in discovering uh, how lies can be seen, it's kind of interesting because chapter Judges chapter 16, verse 6 or 7, 6, I think, Delilah says to Samson, you got to tell me where your strength comes from. Well, because her people, the Philistines, um, which is interesting because the the consonants of Philistine are the same consonants as the word Palestine, because in Hebrew, an F like foxtrot is the same letter as a P like Papa. So um, the uh, Plishtim or the Philistines or, or the Palestinians of the time, um, they, uh, they were trying to get this woman Delilah to find out Samson's strength. He was their enemy, really their nemesis. And so she begs him in, in a way that only a wife can do with a husband, and it becomes impossible to resist, but he does at first. And she says, tell me, tell me, I want to know what your strength secret is. And finally, he can't uh, stop himself. He says to her, well, fine, okay, uh, if I were to be tied up with, with fresh bowstrings that are still damp, you know, they used to wet bowstrings so that they tighten up as they dried. Uh, then I will be weak and just I'll just be like any other guys. So she calls the uh, the Philistine. She says, I got the secret. And she ties him up with bowstrings, which they had provided. And um, and the Philistines are waiting outside because they're dead scared of Samson. They're terrified of the man. 
and she they're waiting for her to tell them that he's safely tied up and she ties him up and she wakes him and says samson samson the philistines the plishtim are, are on you well he jumped up and the bowstring snapped as if they were absolutely nothing and uh, the philistines fled and she says oh you mocked me you mocked me you told me a lie now please tell me the truth you got to tell me you know what's the secret of your strength and he says well if if you know if i'd be tied up with brand new ropes that have never been used for anything else then i'd be just like everybody else so she gets new ropes and she ties him up and the philistines are waiting outside eager to jump in upon a bound samson and um and she yells, Samson, Samson, wake up, wake up. And he jumps up and he snaps the ropes and he chases off to the Philistines and they flee in absolute panic. So she now comes in verse 13. She says, Samson, you've mocked me and told me lies. Please, please, if you trust me, don't you love me? Don't you want me to love you? Uh, you you got to tell me the secret. So Samson now says, and this is worrying because he's now coming a little closer to the truth. He says, uh, if you weave my hair into braids, then uh, it'll then I'll be weak. And so he goes to sleep. She tries it and she yells, Samson, Samson, wake up. This plishtima on you. And he jumps up. And uh, even though he was tied with his braids to a big piece of furniture, he just shrugs it aside and chases after the panic-stricken Plishtim. And so then she says, I, how can you say you love me and how can I love you uh, when, when your heart isn't with me? You've mocked me these three times. You've not told me the secret of your strength. And she harassed him daily, day after day, with words and actions that uh, he just couldn't take it anymore. And the, the Hebrew is vatiktsar nafsholamut. Uh, he, the best way to, to, to translate that is his soul was just ready to die. He couldn't take it anymore. And finally, he says to her, look, that no razor has touched my head my whole life. Uh, I've been a Nazarite from the time I was born. If my head was shaved, then my strength will go from me and I'll become weak like every other man. And now listen to verse 18. And Delilah saw that Samson had told her the truth. And now she called all the Philistines. She said, this time I really got it. Don't worry. Come with, This time we're going to get him. He told me the truth. And the uh, she cuts his hair while he's asleep. And then she says, Samson, Samson, the plishtim are upon you. He wakes up and he tries to chase after the Philistines. They laugh at him. They tie him up. They poke out his eyes and they bring him as a captive. Now, do you know what the big question here is? The question is, he's lied to her three times. What made her think this was not another lie? I mean, he's come up with three different bizarre explanations for his strength. And here's another one. I mean, he says, give me a haircut and I'll lose my strength. She should have gone to the Philistines and said, guys, I can't promise this is it. I'm afraid I've done my best, but he's just been so good at concocting his lies. We'll give it a try, but be careful because he'll probably jump up again and come after you. That's not what she said. Why is it that verse 18 has Delilah saying she saw, in other words, she knew that this was the truth, and she called the Philistines and says, I got it, this time it, I know it's the truth. How did she know? Isn't that a great question? And obviously ancient Jewish wisdom focuses on this, one of the main lessons out of this entire chapter. 
and what is the explanation, what is the answer. And you may want to even pause for a few moments to, to think about this. And the answer, my friends, is that when somebody knows they're telling a lie, they are not quite as persuasive. This is the entire operating principle of a polygraph. This is how a lie detector works. It's exactly what it is. That is the secret. There are certain differences. Sometimes they are physiological. Sometimes they're visible. And particularly if you know the person well. If this person has told you many lies in the, few, in the past, and then he tells you something, and it feels a little bit different, it could be that it's the truth. Conversely, it's the other way around. If the person has told you the truth several times, but now he's telling you something, and you've got a weird feeling about it, trust your weird feeling, this probably is not. And that's what um, Delilah perceived. Samson knew he was lying the first three times. And he couldn't be quite as persuasive as when he knew he was telling the truth. When he said, if you cut off my hair, that'll take my strength, she saw that there was something different about the way that he said this. And this is why it is that, I mean, you've, you've got to be careful because there are utterly amoral psychopaths who can lie and they so believe their lies. And, and I, I know of several high-ranking American politicians in the past uh, few decades um, where that's been like that. They, they totally believe their own lies. And you know what? Even a criminal justice polygraph won't work for such a person. The whole thing is that normal people feel something stressful when they're telling a lie and a sensitive person or someone who has developed their sensitivities catches that and understands that and so um, uh, what it is with the president of the united states of america i'm not entirely sure i haven't studied him i'm far too busy to to spend time doing that however i do know that he lies intuitively and easily and that means that much of what he's talking about when it comes to the spending of trillions of dollars for which we are going to see even higher inflation in the united states which has real meanings for you it means you must be careful about keeping uh, much of your money in cash it'll lose easily 10 percent but i believe more like 15 percent a year of its value that's pretty serious and so you have to get some good advice. Should you um, invest in good stocks? Um, should you invest in international overseas stocks of certain countries? Uh, should you buy some gold? Uh, should you think about cryptocurrencies? Um, I, I'm not going to give you the answer because there is no the answer. Every single person's circumstances are entirely different. But at least we, we need to be aware that uh, these, uh, these things you're hearing cannot be trusted at all. So it, it turns out that this uh, huge bill, uh, spending trillions of dollars, which is meant to be to improve things for all Americans, and you know, I, I can't even tell you all the platitudes that you hear from the administration uh, about all the wonderful things this is going to do. So let me just give you a, a little glimpse 
into reality. What is really going on and what politicians who lie to us are really doing behind the scenes. And in order to do that for you, I need to take you back to one of my favorite topics, which is the Proterra Battery Bus Company. And uh, I have in the past told you about how the chassis cracked and the batteries ran down and how Philadelphia paid over a million dollars per bus, uh, which is like more than four times the cost of a normal bus, and how Philadelphia has dumped all those buses and gone back to their diesel buses, that's right, because it was all a big disaster. These buses are not ready for prime time at all. I told you how several California, Southern California principalities um, have switched to Proterra buses that caught fire, that broke down, that cracked, and they're giving up on Proterra. But um, what you may not have known is that the Proterra battery uh, battery bus company, which is a publicly traded company and um, a uh, a company that uh, is uh, well, by the way, it's it's uh, market symbol is I think it is P R. What is it? It's P P R T R. I think P T R A. That's what it is. P T R A. Um, so they are rather well connected politically, very well connected politically. As a matter of fact, one of their board members was Jennifer Granholm, who you might remember was the governor of Michigan and was brought into the Biden cabinet as energy secretary. Got it? Turns out that one of the largest investors in Proterra was Jennifer Granholm. Other people as well, by the way. But let's just focus for the moment on just one politically connected person. So Jennifer Granholm has a lot of money in uh, stock of the Proterra bus company, battery bus company. And um, guess what? They announced that they are going to be recipients of a huge amount of government uh, money in the form of um, offerings in order to make the environment cleaner in order to stave off climate change. And so the Biden administration, from by the way, from day one, January of 2021, uh, Biden announced that, you know, the, the priority is the climate. And you've heard people from Barack Obama onwards on the left saying that climate change is the biggest existential threat facing the world. Uh, you've had people saying that the main focus of the United States military must be climate change because that's the biggest threat to America. I mean, this is what people say, right? And, uh, and you say, well, they must be fools to say that or else they could be evil. They don't believe it, but they say it because it's in their best interest. How can it be in their best interest? That's what I'm going to be showing you. Back to Jennifer Granholm, former governor of the state of Michigan, now in the Biden cabinet, cabinet as energy secretary. So um, let's see the ride that she got, not in an electric bus, but by holding the shares of... Uh, 
uh, Proterra Bus Company. So um, what happened is that they were down at $11 when Mrs. Granholm bought in. A short while later, um, Joe Biden is inaugurated and they zoom up to $29. Why? Because he made clear from day one of his presidency that he's going to be funding electric transport. So not surprisingly, from $11 to $29, that's quite a ride. Um, that means that every share that you bought for $11 suddenly is worth nearly three times as much. So if you put in $1,000, you got back, you know, about $2,800, $2,850. That's kind of nice. So if you're on the know and you know that this is what Joe Biden is planning, you jump in and you buy Proterra shares at $11. I wish I was making this stuff up, friends. I really do, but I'm not. And uh, Biden comes and announces huge subsidies to the Proterra company. Do you remember Obama did the same with Solyndra? There was also a, a solar. There was a solar energy company. It went bankrupt, but not before huge sums of money. Yes, billions, not millions, billions. Do you know what a billion is? A thousand million dollars. Billions of dollars went from the taxpayers to friends of Obama, who were behind the scenes encouraged to invest. They were given an opportunity to invest in Solyndra. Well, Jennifer Granholm and many of her friends were given the opportunity to invest in Proterra, coming in at $11, and then it's up to $29. But wait, what about all the news about the breakdowns and the Philadelphia getting rid of the electric buses, which they paid a million dollars a copy for in excess of? And what about the Proterra buses that broke down and the Proterra buses that couldn't run the route? Ah, well, that news came out round about the middle of June. And on June the 16th of this year, Proterra shares were down to 880. That's lower than they were at the, um, at the beginning. Eight, they were down to 880. Oh, poor Mrs. Granholm, Jennifer Granholm, Energy Secretary. Poor, poor Jennifer Granholm. Oh, wait a second. Would you believe that she sold out? She got rid of all her shares in Proterra. When, would you believe, in the month of May? Just this, just before all the bad news came out. What a coincidence. Isn't that amazing? How much did she make? I'm thinking between, uh, between one and two million dollars. Just like that. Just like that. Wouldn't you like to make between one and two million dollars with no effort whatsoever oh you probably would but then you just don't have the right friends and so uh there it is uh may 27th no not may 27th the last week in may she sold her shares clearing between uh, a one and two million dollar profit and by june the 16th the shares had plummeted what a miracle a coincidence. No coincidence at all, my friends. That is how corruption works in government. That's the way it works. I wish it weren't so. 
Oh, if it were not so. But it is, and you need to know this. And there may be exceptions, but I don't know of any. So wherever you live, just be aware, understand what's going on here. And, you know, you'll draw your own lessons. You understand, you will understand uh, steps you must take. And, uh, and, and you will either save yourself loss or maybe you will even uh, manage to gain. But you've got to understand what's really happening. Now, Jennifer Granholm is a woman, obviously. And what's interesting is that Joe Biden's cabinet um, has more women than any previous administration. As a matter of fact, there are five women in the cabinet. Um, the uh, Secretary of the Treasury is a lady. The Secretary of the Interior is a lady. Uh, the Secretary of Commerce is a lady. The Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, usually called HUD. Well, she's a woman. And Jennifer Granholm is the Secretary of, well, would you believe, Energy? So, um, right, makes perfect sense for a Secretary of Energy to invest in a battery company, especially when the administration is totally uninterested in the economic realities of electric vehicles and battery power and um, are instead focused on it as an ideological fabric where the entire purpose is to save the planet and to cure climate change. And for that reason, the purchase of electric vehicles is uh, sponsored and subsidized and money is being given, large sums of money have been given already to Proterra Battery Company, as well as other electric vehicle companies. So much so, by the way, that um, I confidently predict that the Proterra Battery Company will go bankrupt, but that many, many people, including Granholm, but all connected people, will have made a fortune. So sometimes when you say to me, Rabbi Lappin, you know, you are a climate change denier. Who would possibly want to tell bad news about the climate? There's no reason for anybody to lie about it. <laughs> Don't be naive. Of course there's reason. I mean, if you want the shares of companies like Proterra Battery, Bus Battery Company, if you want them to go up, then you'll do everything you possibly can to promote the lie of serious climate change threatening the world, and the only cure is electric cars. Coincidentally, I happen to have shares in an electric car manufacturer or a battery company or a bus battery bus company, or maybe I have shares in companies that produce lithium for batteries. Ha ha ha! Well, that's not so simple because although there are uh, lithium deposits in the United States, um, the Biden administration has, of course, suppressed all mining activity and all. Um, oil energy extraction activities and um, furthermore they have made it cost ineffective to do the conversion from lithium as a mineral found in the earth to the lithium that is actually needed inside the battery and at the moment the only place where that is being done uh, economically is china 
It's becoming clearer and clearer, is it not? Wouldn't you have thought that by now, if a government really cared about its people, and it really, really, really believed in climate change, and it really, really, really believed that electric cars is the way to go to solve the problem and save the world and make America have a happy future, well then, wouldn't you have thought that they would have done something about securing lithium supplies? I mean, it's kind of needed for batteries, and it would have been so easy to do. But no, we're perfectly happy leaving China as the only source. And so I think you can begin to get a sense that not only are they lying uncontrollably, but they're lying maliciously out of corruption in a way that they themselves clearly do not even believe. Oh, the oceans are rising. No, they're not. We know they're not. But we're going to frighten people because when people are scared, we can get them to obey us and we can get them to okay vast expenditures of money, which eventually will find its way into our pockets and into the pockets of our friends. It's an old pattern. We've seen it again and again and again. Oh, spare me. So why do I mention the large number of women in the Biden administration cabinet? Because, my friends, um, the, the answer is that men and women are different from one another. By the way, if you are ever stuck on a certain matter and you cannot make up your mind what the truth is on a certain matter, what I recommend you do is check in with what your friends who have already made their commitment to a secular fundamentalist faith and to a worldview that hinges on a godless, unaided, materialistic perspective, find out what they think about this issue that is baffling you and just take the opposite. And nine times out of ten, you'll be right. Oh, I'm so puzzled. I just can't make up my mind. Are men and women exactly the same? And the only reason that women have made the choices that they make and men make the choices they make is because of an evil cultural uh, tyranny that drives women out of the workplace and drives women to make decisions about loving children. Oh, but we're going to fix this and we're going to cure society so as it stops pressuring. Look, so if you are uncertain about this, just go and see what those of your friends who subscribe to the godless worldview say and take the opposite. They say men and women are exactly the same. And um, so much so that even the distinctions of men and women are false and artificial because really anybody can be a man and anybody can be a woman, depending on what they choose to be on Monday or Wednesday or next week. And since they say that, you can safely take the opposite view. The opposite view is that uh, men and women are utterly and completely different beyond all imagination. Men and women are opposite from one another. They're so different. And the ultimate beauty and the ultimate creativity 
comes about when a man and a woman bring their opposite natures together and the the sexual tension of their separateness and their distinctiveness is somehow synthesized into an ultimate form of beauty and creativity. But that's only because they are so different from one another. Or from the perspective I take from the second chapter of the book of Genesis, male and female, he created them. First chapter also, actually. But yes, that's why so early in the Bible, this fundamental principle is stated so emphatically. You're going to make an awful lot of mistakes in your life, professionally, family-wise, work-wise. Oh, you're going to make so many mistakes if you truly believe the leftist position on men and women. And one of the many, many, many fascinating distinctions and differences, and one of, one of the huge delights that come from the privilege of living with a woman is the sheer joy and exuberance that comes from discovering these differences. And, I mean, Susan Lappin and I will often burst out laughing as even, you know, we've been, we've been married a, a, a few years. What, more, more than 10 years we've been married already. And um, you, uh, you'd be shocked, but we still will sometimes spontaneously burst out laughing at something as we realize that I reacted in a masculine way and she reacted in a feminine way. And uh, now we have to rationalize them and integrate them and reconcile them to come up with what would be the best policy for our family in whatever decision we then have to make. But one of the most important differences uh, between men and women is our risk tolerance. It turns out that men are far more willing to take risk than women are. And so we, we have various ways of understanding this. For instance, there's the world of extreme sports. There are the occasional women involved. Yes, there are. But overwhelmingly, people who base jump people who fly in flying suits, people who, um, who drop off bridges with elastic bands tied to their ankles. Overwhelmingly, these are men. Men will take huge risks. For what? You know, for certain benefits. I don't want to go into the biology of it right now. It's, it's really very interesting in terms of uh, testosterone and, and uh and dopamine and other factors, but whatever it is, men see a benefit in jumping off a radio transmission tower with a parachute. Most women do not. Um, men um, excel at chess, right, to, to a huge extent. Right? To, to how much of an extent? Well, it turns out that uh, there are hundreds of chess grandmasters. Yeah, and, and chess is an interesting thing to, to look at um, because there are 1,600 international chess grandmasters. And out of that, 37 are women. So um, there are also female chess championships. 
and the uh, the top-rated woman player is 89th in the world championships. In other words, when men and women play chess together, the top-rated woman, when they play women only, is only the 89th ranked. Um, the uh, the the reigning women's world champion in in chess um, is, I believe, a, a wonderful player, Chinese lady, and she is ranked 404th. So, for the moment. I'm not so much interested in why so many more men than women reach the top in chess. I will tell you that the overwhelming majority of the explanations given for this are false uh, because they are being given by liars. They're being given by people who have an agenda. The one thing everybody knows is that anybody who says the reason is because men are better suited to chess than women has their lives destroyed. This uh, this has happened. Larry Summers was uh, the head of Harvard, uh, who lost his job for saying that women are not as uh, generally equipped as suitable for mathematics and physics than uh, as men are. Anyway, bottom line is that's the the point. And the point I want to make here is that hey, at least there are thirty seven women. You know, there's 1,600 chess champions, and there's not 800 women, No, not even close, there's not even 100, but there are 37 women. So that's something. But when we move to the world of poker, what do we discover? That in the world of poker, again, huge numbers of international poker champions, and only one woman. And so, in other words, as ill-equipped as women are technically for chess, which I'll come to in a moment, uh, it doesn't even begin to compare with how poorly women do at poker. And again, lots of explanations. Oh, the poker championships are hostile to women and men make comments to women and men play differently with men. All of that may or may not be true. I don't know. But one thing I do know is true is that one of the main differences between poker and chess is that poker is a risk-taking game. It's a game of, um, of well, I don't have to tell you, you know, you know about poker. Bottom line is, uh, when it comes to the high-risk world of poker, women don't like it. It's as simple as that. It's exactly the same reason that women do not like becoming um, high-rise scaffold workers in, in uh, skyscraper construction. They don't like it. That's all. They're not being kept out by the glass ceiling or by the steel ceiling. They're not being kept out at all. Women are different from men. And women who wish to enter that field are free to do so. And I'm sure there are some. But it's very unusual for you to be on a work site where people are working up the side of a huge skyscraper on scaffolding and yes they have safety harnesses but you don't see too many women working there not because it's a hostile work environment and it's sexist it's just because women have a lower tolerance for that kind of risky work more people die in accidents on uh, on uh, skyscrapers on construction of skyscrapers than die on the nursing staff of a hospital from work accidents yeah, so naturally we find more women doing that. 
uh, more women doing um, kindergarten teaching than uh, are cleaning the smokestacks of nuclear power stations. It's a very good reason for that. Men will undertake more risky activity. It's as simple as that. It's so clear. Um, years ago, there used to be a silly thing called the Darwin Awards, where they used to nominate uh, the most spectacular death of a stupid man who did something incredibly dumb and died in the process. And they called it the Darwin Awards because that way he was contributing to improving the evolutionary gene pool of humanity by killing himself. That's, you know, it's sort of a rather a macabre sense of humor. But um, just to give you an idea, there was a, a guy in California who actually strapped a jet-assisted takeoff bottle. This is a, a military device which... It helps heavily loaded uh, galaxy transport planes take off from short airstrips. It's like a hugely powerful jet engine, one-time use only. And they fit it onto the plane, and it just gives it the boost. And when you see a plane uh, taking off with a Jato bottle attached, I mean, it's like it just zooms up into the sky. So this lunatic, uh, well, I should just say a male, uh, attaches a Jado bottle to his uh, to his Ford motor car out in the California desert and uh, wants to try and see how fast he can go. And the uh, car starts moving and then he ignites the Jato bottle. And the next thing is they scrape him and his car off a nearby cliff. I mean, the car just took flight. And uh, But again, in all the time I used to follow this, I used to follow it for a radio show I was doing on the West Coast, uh, they ne they, it was never awarded to a woman. Because by and large, women don't do such stupid things. Are they women who do? Well, obviously, right? In, in, a, in a nation of 330 million people, half are women, and they're going to be women doing some incredibly stupid things, but not enough to catch public attention. It is a difference. Um, there is also a difference in range of men and women, right? Men's hats occupy a huge range. That's why you go to a men's hat store. And again, most men don't wear hats anymore, but I do. You know, I, I wear Borsellino fedoras and you go to a, a hat store and you, it's hard to get the range because men's hats range from the sixes, low sixes, even the upper fives to the uh, to eight those are, and there's lots and lots of sizes in between. A seven and five eighths is not the same as a seven and a half. But a woman's hat store, the, the range is, is much, uh, much tighter. In other words, the distribution, the statistical distribution is much tighter. Um, men's heights range far more than women do. They are much shorter men and much taller men, whereas women range more narrowly around a mean in the middle. Uh, and it's also true of intelligence, right? If you if you graph men's intelligence and women's intelligence on a bell-shaped curve, uh, you discover that the range on men is much bigger than on the range of, of women. There are very, very, very dumb men down at the, the left end of the range, um, and the, the right end of the range is very, very, very highly intelligent bright men. And those extremes, the two tails of the bell curve, extend much further in both directions. There are more really, really, really dumb men, and there are also really, really, really more smart men. It's a reality.
okay uh, and I'm telling you the the truth and the reality here even though I'm sure it's very unpopular and that simply means that in the same way that a very big school will feel a big high school will field a better football team than a small private school uh, it's obvious when you've got many 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 more people to pick from statistically you're going to get more very good football players or people with potential for playing good football so it is since there are more um, many more dumb men than there are dumb women at the extreme range of very dumb uh, obviously most really stupid things are done by men at the other end you also have many more really really super high intelligent men than you have women the range is bigger and uh, and that means that you're going to have more men playing chess than you're going to have women and it means you're going to have more men flying jet planes, particularly fighter jets, because the sheer volume of processing that has to happen in a, in, in a flash of a second um, is very much an intelligence-related fact. Now, I don't have to tell you that uh, for a variety of reasons, mostly political, uh, IQ and intelligence have been downplayed in their importance by universities in the United States of America, which are the temples of godless, materialistic, evolutionary thinking. And, uh, and so, again, just go to the opposite of what you're told by a professor with a PhD, and you'll be kind of right. And uh, they will tell you, oh, IQs of no significance. You can't even measure it accurately anymore. Um, unfortunately, they're wrong. Uh, that simply isn't true. And the, uh, the thing that they don't know and, and almost nobody knows is that for real success in life, uh, you actually are at a disadvantage if you're at the very high end of IQ, just as you are if you're at the very, very low end of IQ. Uh, there is such a thing as being too smart for your own good. But for having a wonderful family, for having an extremely successful financial situation, uh, for having great friends, and uh, for taking care of yourself physically, Super high intelligence is a disadvantage. It is an advantage for getting work at the highest levels of government and for securing an academic career. In those two areas, super high intelligence is, in fact, an advantage. And so uh, this big difference between men and women in the area of risk-taking, women do not do well there is a woman uh, champion in, in uh, poker, but not many. Women generally do not do well at poker. It's too high risk. Uh, women, comparatively speaking, do much, much better at chess, but nowhere near as well as men, and that's never going to change unless they change the rules, obviously, uh, in the same way that we can change the rules to make sure there are as many firemen uh, fire ladies as fire men and we can change the rules to make sure there are as many marine ladies as marine men in the united states military uh, we can do all of that but it'll never actually work it just won't mock my words and just remember you heard it first at the rabbi daniel lappin show <laughs> and here we come perhaps to to the most important part of the entire discussion um, which is that liberalism, progressivism, socialism is at its heart feminine, whereas conservatism is much more masculine. 
uh, the entire essence of the liberal project is to eliminate risk. That's what it ends, and everything is governed on that basis because it is a feminine way of looking at things. And being dominant in the culture, naturally, it hates masculinity, and, uh, and so it labels masculinity as toxic while it tries to promote a feminine country, a feminine culture, a feminine world. And they say silly things like, oh, wars would never happen if women were in charge. Well, you're right. What you'd have is retreats. There'd be bug outs. And uh, the reason I mentioned that Biden has more women in his cabinet than any previous president is because, to a large extent, the Afghan calamity was a function of feminism. It is not an accident that the women in the Biden cabinet pushed very hard for a pulling out of Afghanistan. And sure enough, you know, let's avoid the risk. Just let's get out of there. Isn't it more risky to hang on to Bagram Air Base? Isn't it more risky to keep the military on, on high performance levels while we get out the civilians? No, let's just go low risk. Just let's pull everybody out. And sure enough, it was a decision made in that form. Look, um, the, uh, the, the sad reality is that it is possible to look at the 50 states of the United States. Each one gave the vote to women at a different time, different date. You know, it worked its way through all the states, but it was not a federal thing. It didn't happen in all the United States. It happened state by state. Um, I did a very interesting piece of research. I asked my team to take a look and see when states tilted left. When did states turn towards the left? Right, Because California used to be a conservative state. Colorado used to be a conservative state. And then we correlated that with the date on which women got the vote in those states. And what do we find? Hey, presto. Would you be shocked and horrified to discover a correlation? Now, obviously, yes, I know correlation isn't causation. But when it happens 50 times, folks, it's pretty indicative. States swung to the left in the years immediately following the franchise for women, when women got the vote in the United States. By the way, is anybody actually dumb enough to think that this part of the show today sounds as if I hate women? <laughs> Far from it, obviously, you know that. Um, but what is the reality is that men and women are very different. And uh, a country would be really stupid to hand over its military to the running of women. Just a really, really dumb idea. Does that mean countries and cultures won't do dumb things? Oh, they'll do very dumb things. Because keeping a country masculine is about one of the most important things you can ever think of doing. It's interesting to note as well that... Um, the uh, the wonderful professor, uh, you you know I quote her very often. I I would love to meet her, and I am going to try and do so. But she is a professor. I think she's lesbian. I think she's a feminist. She is a feminist. All kinds of things. But she's honest. And I'm talking about Camille Paglia, 
And one of the things she said, and 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 my wonderful son uh, just sent this to me. Uh, he sent me a quote from her. Let me read it to you. It's so beautiful. This is by Camille Anna Paglia. She's a professor, uh, oddly enough, in Philadelphia, where for a short while she could have ridden a battery bus if she wanted to. But from now on, Miss Paglia, it's diesel buses only. And um, what she says is, listen to this. A woman simply is, but a man must become. Masculinity is risky and elusive. It is achieved by a revolt from woman, and it is confirmed only by other men. Manhood coerced into sensitivity is no manhood at all. Beautiful. Beautiful. It's, it's exactly right. It's so true. Men are who on what they achieve and that is something so important for a woman who is looking to become married and a woman who is meeting men it is so important for her to be able to distinguish between feminized men and masculine men so important but unfortunately if she listens to people who have adopted a godless view of reality, a view based on materialistic, evolutionary, biological determinism, uh, she may well make a tragic mistake that she will have, unfortunately, oh, oh dear, time to regret. Very, very sad indeed. I want you to listen to this letter I just received um, this week. Dear Rabbi and Mrs. Lappin, I am a citizen of mainland China. And by the way, he, the, law, the A in China, the last letter of the word China, he substitutes the at sign, you know, from emails that. And my presumption is that he is worried about his email being intercepted. And uh, he use he words that are sensitive words like China and also Christian. By the way, he um, he 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 obscures and camouflages by putting in extra letters and by making the A's the at sign instead of the letter A, uh, because that way it's extremely unlikely that it can be picked up. I am a citizen of mainland China. It is Shabbat today, so he must have written it last Saturday. Shabbat Shalom to you. I am a Christian who celebrates Shabbat. While I was learning from Dave Ramsey, and I still am, I heard your name for the first time. Then I found your happy warrior teaching. I bought your book, Thou Shall Prosper, the Mandarin version, a week ago. Yes, my friends, it was indeed translated into Mandarin in China. And uh, based on emails like this, I know that many, many people in China are reading it. Continues um, the gentleman who writes, Tonight I was eating dinner with my Shabbat candle lit, and your Is That So? Is It Really So? podcast was playing. I was surprised, or I guess I shouldn't be, because you always know what you talk about, touched by the accuracy of your knowledge on the development of China. I smiled when I heard you said, consider finding a Mandarin tutor for your children. As a native Mandarin speaker, I've been thinking of going to Israel to learn Hebrew, how Jewish people think and live according to the Creator's word. 
I started to learn Hebrew a bit last year in 2020. I want to witness how God-fearing Jews treat people, especially the elderly, the weak, and the dying, so I could apply what I've learned in Israel or to the old, weak, and dying here in China. These are all in my prayers. The need of peace, hope, and dignity and security here on this land of China is huge. Only the Creator can meet the needs. I am so small here, like a grain of sand on a vast beach, but He is big. You suggested the Americans to let their kids learn Mandarin while I am yearning to learn Hebrew so I could get the authentic meaning of the good book, especially when I am going through the names of people and places. You have all my respect, dear Rabbi and Mrs. Lapp, and thank you for all of your good work. The impact you have is enormous. I would be really happy if this letter ever gets through the web filters and actually reaches you. I would be super excited if you ever write me back and uh, signed Dan. And Dan, yes, uh, I actually will write you back, and um, that will happen soon. It may not happen very soon because the period of the Jewish Bible festivals is beginning. There is a three-week period every year. It's the Hebrew month of Tishrei, where it's one Bible festival after another, and it also includes seven normal work days that I cannot work. So uh, it's like I'll have several weeks of four-day work weeks, uh, sometimes three-day work weeks, which, as you can imagine, puts huge time pressures on me. But um, I will catch up, and I will eventually write to you, Dan. You don't have to worry about that. Uh, may I give you one more letter? Um, do you mind? This one is a uh, one I like very, very much. Uh, it just got to me recently, a day or two ago. Uh, hello, Rabbi. If you have not yet dotted Uganda on your map, Please do so, for I am here to represent it. And um, and I can tell you that uh, I actually have quite a few flags for Uganda. We've got a lot of listeners in Uganda, but I'm absolutely delighted that you are joining them. We have one more. I stumbled onto your content a few months ago, and I have been digesting it ever since. It simply fascinates me. Your content is like a cool shade on a hot sunny day. I love that. It's incredibly amazing, and it oftentimes helps me calibrate everything else as it gets bombarded my way. It's the golden standard in a world full of spiritual cheats normalized by the secular fundamentalists. And that being said, can you please point me to your opinion on meditation, affirmations, and visualization as regards financial manifestation from a Jewish ancient wisdom perspective? in contrast to what these new ages say. And if it's not within your past content, would you please share with us what the Jewish ancient wisdom has to say about those particular aspects of life? Hope to hear from you soon. And then he signs it with his name. So um, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that, uh, that, that letter very much. And I have actually spoken about affirmations and vision boards in previous um, uh, shows, so I won't do it right now because the truth is we are coming to the end of today's show yes uh, more than at any time in the history of the united states women make up the highest proportion of all the members of the 117th congress uh, the highest percentage in u.s history and a real increase from where things stood 10 years ago women now make up more than a quarter of the United States Congress membership, counting both the House of Representatives and the Senate. That's 144 out of 539 seats, or 27% are held by women. That's a 50% increase 
from the 96 women who were serving in the 112th Congress 10 years ago. And, um, and now, of course, uh, everybody's complaining because women are 50% of the population. Why are there only 27% of the Congress? My point, that what, what you need to know about is that this presents problems. This is not necessarily a good thing. Men and women are different from one another. They really, really are. And uh, it's very important that we understand that. Let's remember Camille Paglia. I mean, it's so funny that I, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, quote many times Camille Paglia, but I can tell you that she would 100% agree when I said that it would be an absolute calamity to put women in charge of a country's military, uh, not because there are no wonderful women who could do it. Uh, Margaret Thatcher was an outstanding Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, outstanding. But generally speaking, in the same way that a large high school will have a better football team than a small high school, just because there are more people to pick from. And so it is that uh, there are much many fewer women to pick from when it comes to running a military, uh, when it comes to running a government. Fewer people. Oh, we need the woman's perspective. No, only if you're a Marxist and you think that human beings must be divided by men and women. But uh, a, a woman who is living a happy, fulfilling life as a wife of a wonderful man, of a noble man, and the mother of great children, and she's raising tomorrow's citizens, and she's raising people who themselves will one day become great parents. A woman like that is not looking to try and join the United States Congress or the United States Marine Corps. She's just not. And uh, Camille Paglia said that if everything, oh, what she said was, in a woman's only world, we'd all still be living in grass huts. That's absolutely true. It's men's drive, ambition, aggression that makes things happen. The reason that we're living in houses and not in grass huts is, is men, not women. Now, a man is motivated by women because I think if men were here alone without women, I think we might also be living in grass huts because much of what we do is because of women. That's a good thing. So Camille Paglia said, a woman simply is, but a man must become. And in that context, it's interesting to know that in a certain way, all um, uh, fetuses, as when an egg is fertilized by a sperm and a human being begins, it's interesting to note that they all start off as female. In other words, when Camille Paglia says a woman simply is, I don't even know if she realizes this aspect of what she's saying, but it's true. It is. Fetuses, human beings start off female. And then after a certain number of weeks of development, there is a, 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 a programmed jolt of testosterone that is injected into the fetuses that are destined to become men. And then they start developing as men. It's just fascinating. It's a difference in how... In, in the reality of how we're formed, that we are innately women, but it takes energy to be a man. And that's exactly right. 
It is much harder to raise boys than it is to raise girls. It takes much more energy, and it takes masculine energy. So Camille Paglia so beautifully and so eloquently says, a woman simply is, but a man must become. Masculinity is risky and elusive. It is achieved by a revolt from women, and it is confirmed only by other men. Manhood coerced into sensitivity is no manhood at all. Oh, it's so good. So um, there we are, and there we uh, must eventually uh, uh, draw into a close. Uh, my website where I urge you to communicate with me. This is the best way to reach me. It is also the best way to take a look at my most important work right now, which is called Scrolling Through Scripture, a vision into the role of the Bible in your life, really. And uh, you can also watch a free lesson you can get a free half-hour lesson on scrolling through Scripture. All of this at my website. Uh, so please visit www.rabbidaniellappin.com and um, I look forward to hearing from you. And I thank you so much for being part of this show. And I want to wish you a wonderful week of great progress a week of growing onwards and upwards in your relationships with God. Yeah, that's needed. And with your finances. Yep. And with your family mm -hmm, and your friendships and your physical fitness. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.